Amen. New Vintage Church. Hey, can we give a round of applause to the worship team, man, and just to what God's already doing here this morning? So cool. Hey, 9 o'clock crew, um, just a heads up, and you'll hear about this a little bit later. If you show up at 9 o'clock again next week, you're just going to be really, really early, and then we'll probably just ask you to volunteer and help out. So uh, just know that, uh, that next week starts our new 10 o'clock and 10 o'clock only time period for a little while. Um, it's going to be awesome. I'm really excited to just have the whole church together in one room. I think it's going to be absolutely fantastic. Well, my name is Scotty Cowan. I'm the youth pastor here at this church. I have the privilege of being able to bring you guys the message today. Uh, and we've been in a, mess, uh, a, a message series uh, called Walking Through Water, which I think a lot of us thought we were going to have to do a lot more of last week uh, than we thought. Uh, I was ready for some thunderstorms. Instead, there was just a couple deep puddles outside my house. I was like, no, oh, all right, that's fine. Um, but I uh, am really excited about today's message uh, and really excited of kind of where we're going in this series. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to be starting in verse 20. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open up there, you want to tap over on the app or the website or, or anything like that, uh, 1 Kings chapter 20. Um, I'm proud to announce that I have now been a married man for over a month. Um, yeah, I, which is so cool. I'm pretty much a professional at it now. I'm pretty much a pro. Uh, I, uh, I am the best husband there is, essentially, at this point. No, it's great. There's no way we've ever argued last night about salmon at all. Um, no, nothing. No, no reason at all. But it's been a great uh, first month of marriage, and thank you guys so much for your support in that. Also, I just want to say a quick thank you. Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, my family went through a crazy, scary health scare this week. Uh, with my dad's stepdad, uh, Tony Corley. Um, and on Monday, uh, if I'm being completely honest with you guys, uh, my, me and my family, we left that hospital and it was not looking good. Um, and the reason I'm really getting emotional is because hundreds, I, I, I counted between Social media messages and texts and phone calls, the ones that I could count, we were well up over 200 people saying, hey, we're praying for you, and we're praying for him, and I just want to say thank you guys, because um, what he went through with that surgery, um, not only was the surgery in and of itself high risk, um, but it was supposed to, the minimum amount of time that it was supposed to get done was five hours. Um, and I got a phone call at four hours <laughs> saying that he was good and out and safe. And God is good, man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. And prayer works. Um, and God moves uh, when his people look to him and to glorify him and um, reach out to him for his glory. And we're actually going to be reading a story about that today. Um, and it's going to start off with a little bit of intro to a couple different characters and, and one uh, or two characters that are married that uh, aren't going as well as me and my new wife. <laughs> it's a little bit of a messy marriage. Um, but I want to catch you guys up on where we are in the Bible um, before we get there. So first we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into kind of a previously on the Bible season First Kings. Um, so let's pray and we'll get into it. Lord, we just thank you for today. We thank you that you move. We thank you that you work. We thank you that your spirit is here with us. Lord, as we look to you, just open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to what it is that you have for us today. Lord, we love you. We praise your name. Amen. 
So like I said, I like to think about the Bible in the context of like TV shows where you have seasons um, and you have a general cast of characters and, and main people going on and then there's kind of like a season of time and then those characters goes away and we move on to the next season. So you have Genesis, creation, and Noah, and then you go, we're kind of in the post-David season of the Bible. Um, and so that's essentially where we are today in terms of the, the kings. So first and second kings are a lot like first and second chronicles and a lot like Luke and the book of Acts. They were all written as one book. So first and second kings was just supposed to be one book, but they split it into two. Um, a lot of my generation recognizes that through what they did with the Twilight books into the movies and the Harry Potter books into the movies. They just took the one thing and they split it up into two. Um, and so that's kind of where we are today. Um, and this has followed what is happening to Israel after David. So David reigned as king for a while, and man, it was a prosperous reign. He made his own mistakes, sure, but it was a very prosperous reign, and it was kind of like the golden age of Israel as we know it in terms of their history. Uh, and this now is following them. So you have David, and then the book of Kings describes the kings that succeed David. And first, it starts with Solomon. Uh, Solomon is David's son, and he starts, we talked about him earlier this year, uh, where he asks uh, for wisdom from God and it is given to him, and he takes Israel to new heights um, like we've never seen before. But it is short-lived uh, because he starts to make mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. Um, it starts with him, you know, having hundreds of wives, hundreds of concubines, uh, uh, adopting all of their cultures, and then he starts to adopt their gods into Israel, and everything starts to get really, really messy really, really quick, and it kind of kickstarts this absolute down spiral that we have of the nation of Israel. Um, and they start to kind of look a lot more like Egypt, <laughs> where they were slaves, and but that whole culture that they were freed from, they start to look more and more like Egypt, a little more every single day with the choices that Solomon makes, and then as it continues. So as it continues, then we have um, his son, Rehoboam, uh, and he, it's not a good story. Uh, it is a story of lust, a lust for power, uh, greed, and he essentially starts a conflict that will ends up splitting Israel into two nations. You have the north, Israel, and the south, Judah. Now, the, the temple that Solomon built is in the south, um, and Rehoboam doesn't like that, and he's kind of now ruling in the north, and so he builds two temples. He goes, well, you guys got one big old grand temple for God? Okay, cool. Now we have two, which you think, cool, yeah, he's he's trying to maybe strive harder to worship God? No, because then he brings in these two golden calves. It parallels Exodus chapter 36 a lot. Um, and he puts a calf in each of these temples and say, hey, Israel, the north, these are our gods now. These are who we're going to worship. And so we start to see it is now going to just keep down spiraling through the rest of these kings. Now, when we get to the rest of these kings, um, the book of Kings is kind of a little bit, once it gets to this point, it becomes kind of what modern day uh, 
social media might look like when it comes to different rulers around the world. It just provides a little excerpt of how the author um, evaluates them, except it's not crazy and volatile as it is on social media. He follows three criteria. Um, did they worship God and only God? Did they adopt any other idols? Um, and did they, did they keep to the covenant of what God had for them? And the idol part is also, did they battle against any idolatry that are popping up in the lives of their people? And so this is kind of the report that happens on these kings. Um, and after each king, he, he goes through these three things, and then it's kind of said, okay, did they keep these three commandments? Then they were a good king. Uh, if not, then they were a bad king. Um, and the north essentially looks like the 2023 San Diego Padres. 0 for 20, they're just striking out every single time. Um, they are not doing good whatsoever. Um, a lot of hype, a lot of excitement around this northern Israel, but no delivery on their kings. Uh, 0 for 20. The south did a little bit better um, in their history. They also had 20 kings during this time. They had eight good ones. They had eight good kings that followed these rules. But overall, it's not doing well. And the north is descending into chaos faster than the south due to the fact that they can't even land one good king. So at the same time as these kings are causing havoc, God is raising up the prophets. And you kind of see this king versus prophets relationship that are going on. Um, they spoke on behalf of God. They spoke out against idolatry and other gods. They tried to keep the kings in line with God's covenant, and they challenged Israel to repent and follow God. Here's the thing about the prophets, though. They were not high-status, reputable people. A lot of time they were marginalized, homeless, uh, living out in the wilderness, and so they didn't necessarily have all these people that looked to them and followed them. They would just kind of pop up and speak on behalf of God, and God would speak to them to do certain things and, and go and, and do these acts, go and speak to this person, uh, go and deliver this message. And so you have this relationship with the kings, try, dis, not trying to descend, but they just are, descending everything into chaos, and the prophets trying to uphold everything that is for God. Now, the two most famous prophets in terms of the kings, um, the, the books, is uh, Elijah and Elisha, which is one of my favorite parts about the Bible. A lot of times when people are like, yeah, the Bible was just written by a bunch of people trying to convince us God. Was, okay, then why would you take two very prominent figures that uh, secede one another and give them almost the same name? It's just confusing. I never know which one we're talking about because I can't tell because they're so close together. Elijah and Elisha. Today we're focusing on Elijah. A quick point real quick before we get to him though. When you get to that latter half of the Old Testament and you start getting to all the major and the minor prophets, it can be very hard to recognize where in the story of the Bible as a whole are you. These prophets are in, woven into everything we just talked about. Some are in the same time as David. Some are in the same time as these horrible kings. Some are in the time of exile, which happens after the reign of all these horrible kings. And some are in when the Israelites get to return back to Israel. So when you're reading that and you're going, what, where are they in the timeline? This is kind of where all those, actually this is where all those major and minor prophets land. I uh, just wanted to kind of help you out in that aspect. I know when I was young reading those books, I was like, I don't know where I am. I can't follow this timeline. I don't understand it. I'm a very chronological, give me the chronological story kind of thing. Um, yeah, it, so that's when you read the minor and major prophets, that's where you are. So 
Elijah, who we're focusing on today. He is kind of the most prominent prophet at this time. Um, and he is living in the north, and Israel is absolutely spiraling out of control. Um, and so he is trying his best to um, be a representative of God, and God tells him to go do this thing, and he does it, and this act, and speak to these people, and whatever. And so at this point today, God is going to ask Elijah to go speak to essentially who ends up being his main rival <laughs> in this time of the Bible, and that's Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, Ahab is the king at this time. Um, I think he is the sixth or seventh after Roboam that we just read about, um, and uh, he ain't good at all. Uh, he's not good at his job whatsoever, and the problem is, is he's married Jezebel, um, and Jezebel uh, is portrayed in the Bible as a kind of symbol of wickedness, idolatry, and manipulation, um, which is so funny whenever I you guys ever hear those people? It's like, oh, I, I named my kid after someone in the Bible. And it's like, oh, what? A, it's Jezebel. Oh, you need to go read uh, the Bible again. <laughs> no, but she, she's not a great person. And so Ahab marries Jezebel, and she comes, she's a Canaanite, and she brings in the god of Baal, or the Baal god, and says, we are now going to adopt the worship of Baal. And so you had Israel that was already split. You're either worshiping God, you're worshiping these all these idols and other gods, or you're kind of bouncing between both. And Jezebel comes in and says, forget all those idols and other gods that we've been worshiping other than the Hebrew God, the true God. We are now going to mainly focus on Baal. And this is what descends in Israel into its most chaotic point up to this. Um, the Baal religion is not good. Um, it is very violent in nature. Um, there are human sacrifices that involved. There are rituals that are just, you actually, we'll actually read about it in just a second. Some of the stuff they do during the rituals is absolutely insane. Um, and it just descends Israel into more and more chaos. And so God approaches Elijah and says, you need to go confront Ahab for me. Um, to get Baal out. So that's where we are today in 1 Kings um, chapter 18, starting in verse 20. We'll read it here. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Now, this is not right down the freeway. I wish it was right down the freeway because then I could go visit it, but it's across the sea. Um, and Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping? between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose. Sorry, I just lost it. To, and let them choose one bowl for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. 
and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So essentially he says, all right, we're setting up a challenge. Um, me versus you guys. Uh, we're going to take two bulls, sacrifice, cut them up. We're going to lay them on the wood. We're not going to cook them or anything. We're going to decide this the old-fashioned way, which God responds with fire. That is the true God. And let me just say this real quick, just as a quick point. One person plus God is greater than any number of anyone that could ever come against him. God himself is already greater than anything that could come against him. But what I want to emphasize here is so often, whether you're a student at college, high school, middle school, whatever, whether you're a a working adult in a job, whether you're in a family where you can just sometimes feel alone in your faith. I was talking to one of our young adults uh, earlier this week who was just talking about right now it's really hard to go to work (laughs) because uh, the anti-Christian talk is just all being aimed at me right now, and it just kind of sucks. And I was like, yeah, I, I feel that. I've been through that. And one of the things that we have to remember is sometimes it can feel like we are very, very, very alone. Uh, maybe when we're deciding to take a stand with God on something. But we also have to remember that us plus God is already greater than anything because God is already greater than anything. It's not us that puts him over the top. He is already so far above the rest that we're just joining in on the winning team. Congratulations, you've joined the team. You win. That's essentially what's going on here. And that's what we're going to see with this. Going to verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. And there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud. For he's a god, either he's musing, maybe he's relieving himself, Uh, maybe he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. This is what I'm talking about. This is this crazy, violent, very wild religion. And midday passed, and they raved on. Until the time of the offering of the oblation, which that word just means something that is offered up to God. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So I'm a very competitive person. Um, If you have not ever experienced that, don't ever invite me over to play Monopoly. It's not, I'm just very competitive. Um, my wife is also very competitive, <laughs> um, and sometimes when we are put on a team against other people, sometimes our trash talk can become a little loud. So I am someone that appreciates a little bit of healthy confidence in what is going on, and that is exactly what Elijah has here. In this, this little bit of trash talk, he says, hey, maybe cry louder, shout louder, maybe your God is just going to the bathroom. And he need, maybe he's asleep and you need to wake him up, right? Now, here's what I am not saying. When we have confidence in God, maybe it's not always the best idea to go out into the world and ridicule people on their beliefs. <laughs> or maybe, because at the end of the day, if they don't know 
the Bible, it, I've always explained it like this. If I showed up to a group of four-year-olds and said, today we're playing football and threw them out there with a football and then started throwing flags and penalties and they're like, we don't know the rules. I'm like, yeah, we got to figure it out, right? We can't approach sinners in that way. Uh, uh, people that don't know God in that way. Uh, uh, fellow humans that mess up just like us, that are sinners just like us, we can't approach them and say, oh, you're breaking all these rules. I've never read it, right? I don't know. (laughs) Um, We can't approach them with that mentality. Here's what we can do. Have enough confidence in our faith and have enough confidence in God that we can recognize ridiculousness when it is in front of us. When we can recognize false things when it is being presented to us. That we can look at whatever the world may offer, because let's be honest, back then, the name of this false god was Baal. Today, it is money, uh, the next promotion, uh, striving everything I have after making sure I have the perfect grades for the perfect college, um, the sport I play, uh, the um, hobby that I have, um, uh, sports team that I like, uh, whatever, that can start to over-consume our life, right? That we can be so confident in God that all these things that the world might present that say, this is the fix, this is what can get you what you want. And say, no, I have confidence in God. And that is ridiculous. <laughs> and I will stand here with God, even if it is me versus 450. So after uh, Elijah's great moment of maybe your God's going to the bathroom, it finally subsides. And then in verse 30, Elijah says, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two sehas, which is about seven, a little over seven gallons of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl into pieces, laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and put it on the, off- put it on the offering. He says, go, go get four jars of water, pour it on the offering. So they do it. And he goes, do it a second time. He says, do it a third time. Again, this confidence in God saying we're supposed to, my God is supposed to set fire to this. I'm so confident in who God is, douse it with water until the point where it filled up the trench around it. Like I said, about seven, a little over seven gallons, right? As well as just completely soaking the entire altar. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah and the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known to this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that these people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I want to pause right here for a second. This prayer to God is beautiful. And I feel like sometimes, myself included, (laughs) in the modern day era of Christianity, we can start to feel like I've got to be able to prepare the best possible sermon for God to move. I've got to be able to prepare the perfect worship set for God to move. I've got to be prepared for when I sit down with this person to share my faith, to share it in such 
an amazing way that they accept God right then and there. I've got to be prepared to be the best example to my friends, to my family, and, and just provide such an amazing reflection of who God is that, that it might turn their hearts back to him. Or, in the, as you get kind of down the extreme of, I kind of want people to recognize that I'm really faithful. You know, and God moves whenever I'm involved because I'm really faithful, right? In fact, this prayer is what we should be emulating and how we live in interacting with people each and every day of our life. God, God of Israel, I want you to move so that they recognize that you are God and that I am just serving what it is you're telling me to do. And I want you to move to the point that they recognize that it is you turning their hearts back towards you, not something that I did. And you know what's really cool about this? Elijah says nothing about asking God to set the altar on fire. He just says, God, I want you to move so they recognize who you are. And then we see it, verse 38. Then a fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their face and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, we've been going through this series of walking through water. And we've been talking about water in the Bible. And we've been talking about how when water shows up in the Bible, it very often um, provides an example of new life, new creation, and kind of like a, re, a regenesis of sorts, new creation, new, new life. And so where is it in this story? Well, the water that's dumped on the altar that we see water there, that's not necessarily the, the water that I think is the coolest about this story. If you look a little bit before this moment in 1 Kings chapter 18, um, you find out that Elijah had prophesied a complete drought in the nation of Israel, not a drop of rain for years to come. And it had been years and years and years and years. And then this happens, and there's a moment. When, this was a very public moment. Elijah has confronted the king to go after the God that his queen has brought into the nation. There are 450 prophets there. The, the entire, the nation that can make it there are there. And they see this, and their response is that they fall on their faces as the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And when they turn back towards him, instantly, a little further down in the chapter 18, Elijah and uh, the king are talking again. And they do this little kind of says, he goes, go out and look, go out and look, go out and look. Rain falls for the first time in years. And so we get to see this water aspect of new life, new creation, and new turn. So what are these things that have been made new in the nation of Israel at that time? Well, there's four main things that I think have happened once this moment happens that we get to see for a time. Um, the first one is spiritual revival, um, that they were tied in between 
God, there was three camps. I'm worshiping God and God only. I am worshiping Baal and Baal only. And then this camp in the middle that was kind of like, I kind of want to worship both, right? And that goes away and turn back to God. Let me challenge this church and say this, that we were made with a heart to worship our creator. We were made with a heart to worship. And if it is not our creator that we are worshiping, if it is not God, it will end up being something else. You can't, you can't, we were made to be creatures of worship. And you see it. Like I said, you see it through job, chase after money, a chase after the perfect school, the perfect college, the sports teams, uh, the perfect family, uh, the perfect house, uh, the perfect whatever. You can kind of fill in the blank as we were made to worship, and so we're going to find something to worship. Why do you think there are such fanatics in Philadelphia when it comes to the Eagles? <laughs> Why do you think there are such fanatics when it comes to all these concerts that you see around the world? With it? There's, the, there's a side of appreciating sports. It's fun. There's a side of appreciating music. It's fun. But then it gets to that where it does become this weird attitude of worship because we were made to worship. And so it will be something if it is not God. Um, and so we must always be ready to turn right back towards God and worship him. Number two is there's then a rejection of the foreign influences. They take everything that Jezebel brought in and go and kick it out, right? At least for a time. Um, and they focus back in on God. And so often we let a lot of influences from outside, a lot of foreign influences that aren't God, that aren't Jesus, start to tug on us. Hey, you should be more like this. Hey, you should act like this. Hey, you should do this. And we start to recognize, man, what should I be chasing? What should I be worshiping? What should I be moving after? What should I be following? And there are times in our life when we have to look and take inventory and say, I need to get rid of some stuff. I need to turn down the volume on some stuff so that I can focus better on God. Have you guys, is anybody else like me where like when you're trying to find a parking spot, you're like, you're looking for your next turn and the music's too loud, you have to turn it down so you can see better. I don't understand it, but it happens, right? But that aspect of like, hey, I've got to focus in more on God. I've got to turn down the volume of other things in my life. I've got to kick out some things in my life so I can focus more on God. Number three, a unified spirit towards God. This is talking more about the church as a whole. Um, we need to make sure that we are unified in our approach towards God and we do not let these false gods and ideals break in. Now, what I'm not saying is anyone that is, does not follow after God is not you know, welcome here or anything like that. What I'm saying is anything that might make its way in to try and split our unification as a church and as the church body as a whole, we need to get rid of so that we can approach after him, so we can not have to worry about, oh, I, this person's over there worshiping Baal, and I'm worshiping, eh, eh, eh. no, stay unified and stay chasing after God. Because that's when you see the most powerful movements in the Israelite people throughout the Old Testament. You get to see Jericho, you get to see the Red Sea, you get to see the Jordan River, you get to see the prosperous reign of David, because they're all unified after God. Um, when that unification starts to break up and the body starts to separate and worship different things, uh, it can just lead to chaos. And fourth, um, a restoration of prophetic authority, a restoration of God's authority. So after this, the prophets were kind of given a little more, um, a lot of people were giving them a lot more validation in what they were saying. 
and a lot of the people were giving them more attention uh, and a restoration of God is Lord, like they said at the end of the story there. He is Lord. He is Lord. Um, and, and God's authority comes back, and the authority that he gives to the prophets is more respected. And again, when we do these things in our life, when we decide I am worshiping God and God only, and I'm not going to let the world try and tell me and tug me in different ways and maybe mess up my identity and my calling that I have in him, um, and I'm going to stay unified with my church community, when we do that and chase after him, there is a restoration of God's authority in our life, saying God is God, no one else is God. And when you follow him, you you get to see and live life in the way that it was always meant to be. And I'm not going to say it's always going to be great. It's always going to be easy, but it's going to be awesome <laughs> because it's God. Lastly, what I want to say is God fulfills his promises. And the world will try and tell you that it can do the same, but it cannot. Um, like I said, uh, Elijah doesn't say, hey, God, burn the altar. I hope it happens. You have the Baal prophets running around this altar for hours and hours and hours and doing anything and everything they can to say, please, will this fake God, please just do what we want you to do. And the world will come in and say, hey, try this thing to get exactly what you want. Hey, try this lifestyle to get exactly what you want. Hey, try focusing on this thing to get exactly what you want. And they'll try and convince you that this will work, that this false ideal, that this false pseudo-religion, that this false way of living, that this false community, this is going to get you what you want. And we spend our lives dancing around saying, please, please, I just want this, please, please, just want this. And Elijah's standing over here and saying, God, let them know that you are God, whatever you're about to do. Let them know that you are God. Amen. And we can stand back and rest on the fact that God will fulfill his promises every single time. It may not look like our timing. It may not be perfect when it comes to our timing. It may not look exactly what the answer we wanted it to be. It, 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 it could be a yes. It could be exactly what we were praying for. It could be a little bit off of what we were praying for. It could just be complete opposite of what we were praying for. But God is working for our good. And as we go through the trials of life, we can rest on him saying, God, remind me that you are God. God, remind them that you are God. And that I'm your servant just following your word. Rather than dancing around and doing all these ridiculous things and trying to get your way through some other false ideal that the world has to offer us. So that's what happened, right? Israel turned around and on their face and said, God, you're God. And they, they got it right. Then then they never had any problems ever again. Uh. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and we see this. We see this tug of war happen all throughout the Old Testament. And we see it with our lives. Where there are moments in our lives that you go, God, you are, what I just witnessed you do is amazing. And there is no way I could ever doubt you or have questions about you again or be angry at you or anything ever again because what you just did is amazing. And then about two weeks later, we're like, oh, how am I ever going to trust you again, God? Like, that we see it in the tug of war of our lives and we see it in the tug of war of the Old Testament with the Israelite people. 
the north continues to go through chaos, Israel. Um, Ahab and Jezebel, essentially their actions set up assassinations and coups, and then the next guy brings in uh, this idol thing, and it's not really, you know, ever adopted as much as Baal, because again, there's a more unified approach toward God, but still it's trying to be brought in, and then that guy's assassinated, and then the next guy brings in another idol, and then there's a coup on that guy, and then the next guy brings in an idol, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes, and to the point where it gets to Assyria comes knocking on the door, and they're so broken and in chaos, they have nothing no chance, and they get wiped out. And then, what about the south? They had eight good kings, so like maybe they're doing great. No, they had Manasseh show up, <laughs> and he was the worst of all of them. Uh, he introduced like child sacrifice and all this kind of different stuff, and just descends Judah into utter chaos. And then Babylon comes knocking on the door. And just wipes them out and takes them out. And then the Israelite people, as we know them, are either enslaved yet again in Assyria or Babylon or scattered across the world, fleeing or killed. And so we're left at the end of the book of Kings, right? We've read 1 Kings and we've read 2 Kings. And we're going, oh, wow, so God must be done with them then. It's, it's, it's Noah all over again, <laughs> That, that must be what's going on, is he was so over it that he just gave up on the Israelite people. Look, they got wiped out by Assyria. They got wiped out by Babylon. And hold on, wait, hold on. The Messiah is supposed to come from David's line. So is that not a plan anymore? Are we not doing that? The Messiah is never showing up because his people have been wiped out. And it said from David there will be a lineage of kings that come from David, one after another, after another, after another, that are kings. And then Jesus will show up. The Messiah will show up. So is that over? Well, the beautiful part is that God continues to work through us even when we decide to mess up in the biggest of ways. <laughs> and at the end of 2 Kings, there is kind of like uh, if you've been you know, going to the movies lately and you ever go see a Marvel film uh, and you watch the movie and then it ends and you stay for the end credits and then there's that little bonus film at the end of the movie. Uh, we get that in 2 Kings. There's like the book ends and then it fast forwards 40 years. Um, and there's a king from the line of David who is in prison, but he is now the king of Judah, the Israel people, Jehoiakim. And the current king of Babylon at the time just lets him out of prison and invites him to be on his council. And he lives at a higher status than almost anyone else in Babylon. Um, and from there, you start to see the Israel people start to make a return. And this idea that we can mess up to the highest degree, but God is not done with us and Jesus is still Jesus and he's still on his way, or for us, his actions are still done, and it's still a victory for us. He is the God of not just second chances, but the third, fourth, fifth, and on and on and on. He's the God of X amount of chances. And through Jesus, uh, we get to see a victory that is way better and way cooler than fire shooting down from the sky and burning up an altar, right? Now, from this line, Jesus does show up, and he lives the life that he lives, and he preaches and speaks to so many and, and starts this following, and then he takes the punishment for our sins. 
He takes the wrath for our sins and dies and is crucified and then rises again, defeating death and the grave forever. <laughs> and that is the ultimate victory. God could have said, I've had enough with the Israelite people. I'm done with humans. I'm done with you guys. But he continues to say, no, there's, I love you too much. And I don't want heaven without you. So Jesus will show up and do what he will do for us. And through that love and that sacrifice, you will get to return back to me. And we get to make the choice that the Israelites made at the end of this story and then continue to mess up, just like we get to make the choice. And then when we do mess up, we get to make the choice again to turn back to, say, to him and say, Lord God, you are God and you only are God. And we get to do that because of the sacrifice Jesus made for us because God was faithful with his promises. And we get to remove all this stuff from our lives and focus back on him and chase after him and live in a life in a way that we should have always lived, and that's with our creator. And so during this time of communion that we are about to step into, we are going to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us and how we get to live in that light because of it. So the bread representing his body that was broken for us, the, the cup representing the blood that was shed for us, and during this time, church, let's say thank you and be in an attitude of thanks for what Jesus did for us. And then let's be in an attitude of saying, God, I am ready to remove the bales in my life. Whatever it is that's getting in the way of my true worship of you. So Jesus, I thank you that you have even given us a chance to be near to you and to worship you and to have your presence in our life and help me now to remove these false things in my life so I can truly chase after you. Let's do that during this time of communion, church. Lord, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love and your sacrifice, God. And I pray that this morning we look at our life as a whole and decide enough is enough with these false gods and these false things that we chase after, Lord. Lord, I am returning back to you. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you in your name.